Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebet. Welcome to Rebet Live Dash Radio Dash Talk X. Uh, talking business, behind the scenes of business, and all things um, that are going great. I'm extremely excited today because I'm going to talk to someone that's some hemisphere. I'm very excited. Uh, just across the pond, I'm from New Zealand, they're from Australia, but now I'm in, in Virginia, just from uh, Singapore before that. It is uh, Maggie Worrell, PhD. Very impressed about that. Uh, Maggie is a LinkedIn top voice, best-selling author and keynote speaker, founder of uh, Global Courage uh, Leadership, um, and advisory board of the Forbes School Business and Technology. Very impressive kickoff to start with. No pressure, ladies and gentlemen. Maggie <laughs> Worrell, how are you? Now I've got to live up to expectation. <laughs> oh, jeez, I know the I know the feeling. I'm like, sorry, I, I hope I hope I'm not shit. Um, oh, I guess I'll I'll start here. You've started in Australia. Mm-hmm. Seven sisters and brothers. Yeah, three, sisters? three brothers and three sisters. Yeah. And were you the youngest? No, I'm the big sister. Ah, oh, that's even. The, I don't know if that's 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 even tougher because then you're the right across all of it. Um, if you think about the progression of coming from Australia to where you are now, and you think about the journey that you've had as a young buck into a you know grown weapon that's clearly gone global. What was it in your headspace that enabled you to successfully transition from local thinking to global execution? Because I think at a start, if you when you look at the resume of what you've done and how you've done it, it's um, extremely impressive. But clearly, something in your headspace has kind of enabled that to drive and go. And you know, uh, a lot of people that live in smaller countries don't have that that same even vision to think big enough or go big enough. So I'm just intrigued right at the core of it for the first question. Um, What's in your head that's helped you go from local to global successfully? Uh, Look, I think I've always had a spirit of adventure. There's an intrepidness Mm. to how I approach life. Uh, I think of that quote, is it Helen Keller, that, you know, life is a daring adventure of nothing at all. And um, and I think being Aussie actually and you, Kiwis, we're a long way. You grow up a long way for the, from the rest of the world. But I, even in Australia, felt like I grew up a long way from civilization. I mean, I grew up in a really rural area. So even a big city that had a McDonald's in it was exciting for me, literally for my first 18 years. So there was just a, a, a curiosity and, and a spirit of like, what's out there in the world? And, you know, and so curiosity, adventure, and then obviously a willingness to get out of my own comfort zone and to leave the familiarity of where I'm from behind again and again and again and again, like just countless times. Yeah. It, was it a, um, for myself personally, I you know, grew up in a small town, then I went to the Wanaka thing, then I did the Auckland thing and then, you know, kind of, you kind of, your bubbles, they don't burst, you just build a new one. It's, and it's not that like these lily pads, you you go to a, this this new challenge, this new thing, or it's a bigger bubble or whatever it is. Do you think that's just a, um, a DNA trait of curiosity to, to try and see and gain new perspective and, and, and growth personally? Because usually a lot of times the people that are, you know, just happy doing their thing, nine to five, clock in, clock out, whatever, nothing that's, that's wrong with that, but they are, content with their headspace of challenging what their normal is have you just even now are you still pushing that envelope of what you feel like why can't we do that dot 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 why what would this be like you know yeah why not and 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 i moved back from to, to the united states two weeks ago today um from living in asia in singapore and in australia for the last nine years and had been in the u.s for 
over 10 years before that. So I've sort of just feel like I've just come back again after a long time on the other side of the world. And and I think part of it is personality, uh, you know, and how much have, is our personality shaped by our environment, our birth order and all those, how we were raised, et cetera. But I, I, I'm someone who actually does get bored easier maybe than other people. Like I love, you know, changing things around in my home every now and again. I, I I enjoy going on holidays to different places, not going to the same cabin in the woods or on the lake every vacation that some people are really happy with and that's not a judgment. It's just different. I just enjoy variety. So mm. I'm actually have just moved back here to the D.C. area where I lived before and so there's a familiarity to that. But but I'm I'm always kind of interested to do to do more things and learn more things and business life as usual after a while becomes even if life's great I'm still like okay but what else is mm. is there and I don't think it comes from a place of oh I'm just never content more that I'm just always curious to experience new experiences. Well, I was just thinking in my headspace of you know is that when you kind of you have curiosity times courage equals adventure. You know, like when you're curious about something, but then the courage to go try it, you're like, stuff it, let's go. And then the byproduct every single time, regardless, is going to be some type of adventure or learning or, or progress. It's quite an interesting um, headspace because if you have if you have courage but not curiosity, um, then what are you courageous for or creativity? You know, that kind of goes goes yep. line in line. That's, yeah. yeah. Now, maybe that's some type of insight around, do you feel that there is a formula of how you try and, approach helping others with their leadership and stuff like what what's your you've obviously got to be around the Forbes crew and you know looking at the companies that you've worked for and the, the places that you've been over the last of the last wee while is there a trait that you've found that is consistent time and time and time again when you've seen leaders that want to change but don't know how Look, fear is the underlying emotion uh, and that expresses itself in many, many different ways and different colours and uh, sometimes it is an absolute fear of being found out as not good enough, as inadequate in some way, you know, that, in, that imposter syndrome, when are they going to realise if I if I do this that I'll, I'll be, my cover will be blown. Um, but generally, I, I believe absolutely that, um, that, that threads through those who aren't able to achieve the levels of fulfillment and success that they really want and really in their own, whatever their potential is. And we're all different, right? We're all wired for different things. Not everyone's wired to be, you know, um, a CEO or not everyone wants to be a trailblazing entrepreneur, um, serial entrepreneur. I mean, we're different. We Different things light us up and we have different strengths. But I think fear under, un, underpins what gets in the way of people. And it's why so much of my work in the leadership space, in the corporate realm, but frankly across the board, is really around helping people to be braver, helping people to, to master and manage those fears. So on that, right, when you say fear, is that if you're talking at the C-suite, is it net-net at more of a internal fear for those that they don't, they, they don't feel like brave enough or confident enough that of their abilities or is it fear of what others externally are thinking? Is it internal or external? Where's the tension pull on, on that fear if that was to get broken down? Oh, look, it, obviously it's both. And often when we talk about our fear of what other people might say or other people not liking things, you know, if you bring all that back, well, it's like, well, if they don't like what I do, if we're not grounded enough in our own sense of self, 
then we're going to give a lot of power away to keeping other people happy and approval and accolades and admiration. And that's where, I mean, the, the work around, say, growth mindset, it's like certain people that get really good at doing something and they're like, I don't want to risk not looking good at something. I don't want to risk not nailing it and getting the, the five-star review or the accolades or the front cover of Forbes. <laughs> and so yeah. it's that willingness to actually to not nail it that actually makes that makes the difference and i i think whether it's in the corporate realm or obviously in the entrepreneurial space there's obviously different stakeholders and there's different types of risks you have to take but um people who have a really strong sense of their of their own strengths and who they are their own identity and it's not determined by everybody else are those who are willing to put themselves out there and 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 not get comfortable with being comfortable. It's really mm. easy when you've had a certain level of success to kind of go, hey, <laughs> I'm just going to stay Sorry. here now. But, but people are continually like challenging themselves, stretching themselves. Okay, what now? What more? What haven't I done? What else could I do? That that bit around risk you're talking about in, in, in the roles is really intriguing to me because the way I see it a lot of times in big organisations, probably not to the same sort of extent, will be someone in a position of power is at the end of the day potentially more interested in their LinkedIn profile, making sure it goes up with status or position or success than they are about being brave to actually try something, maybe fail and actually go side or down because the weight of that arc of where they're supposed to be going sometimes makes them make decisions which are more on the risk averse side which are more on defense it's kind of that offensive defensive thing right is that something that you've potentially noticed as well absolutely you see that when your people are in their 20s and they're hungry there's not much to lose right you're starting out you've got nothing to lose you don't have any money anyway you don't have a reputation anyway <laughs> um and then when people get into their later 30s, their 40s, 50s, you know, right, there's more to lose. And so yep. to your point, the offensive versus defensive, people go from playing to win, which is to, to forge new ground, to learn, to, you know, to learn new things, to launch new products, to playing not to lose. And it's yep. a very different mindset. And I, I think this year, 2020, as this crisis upended all our lives and our certainty and our businesses and everything sort of got tilted off its axis, I saw a lot of people moving into that defensive play not to lose. Like there was, you know, literally an existential crisis. You know, will our business actually survive this? And clearly some, it's just been too tough and some haven't and some won't. But but while it's extremely natural to immediately look at, okay, we just need to shore up what we've got. We need to cut costs. Mm. We need to, you know, really come back to core if we stay in that mode, in that mindset of being purely defensive, you actually miss out on the opportunities, like that creative destruction that you get out of a crisis, like all the things, the multi-crisis of, of 2020. And so I think mm. that's where it's really important to constantly look at, like not only, you know, what is it I'm afraid I might lose, but where is there an opportunity to, to forge new ground, to innovate new ideas, to come up with better ways of mm. doing what we do, of serving our customers or, you know, and our stakeholders altogether? exact example of that is in the commercial real estate space the you know with yeah. all the stuff the, the, the millionaires that hold it are all on defense of like holy shit let me save and then the billions are like giddy up let's play because now i've got a whole bunch of you know under um 
undervalued assets, which I'm going to come through and steamroll. I've got a, a friend of mine who's the head of commercial at one of the big things in New Zealand. That's exactly what he said was happening. He goes, mate, offense and defense. Billionaires, defense. Billionaires, offense. It depends what side of the table you're on. I was like, shit, you're right. He goes, because in their heads, they're playing a different game. They're playing decades, not years. They're playing, you know, quarter centuries, not quarters, um, which changes the mindset as well of, I guess, them being able to take into it. Um, it's it's always interesting, regardless what whether they're selling, you know, plumbing supplies or, you know, um, widgets. The same effects and pressures on these leaders are the same. And it's clear it always comes down to the internal bravery first or whatever. I'd said one of the things I, I said a bit ago was, you know, um, like innovation is bravery in action. Where if we're all in the same spot, but we're going to innovate, that means doing something different than everyone else. But you need the internal bravery first to be like, no, nah, stuff it. I'm going to go try this other shit to then go and do it. And that's when innovation happens. It's a byproduct externally after they've got internal bravery first. And time and time and time you see with, with, with situations, exactly your point, instead of, um, okay, what's next? What can we do? How can we make this better? It, it's freeze, shit, now what? You know, when in this, tw- the year that's been 2020 that you talk about, um, do you feel at the headspace of leaders, what's been the mindset that you've seen? Because obviously everyone is remote. Everyone's at home. They're in their own little offices. When you've talked to leaders in their own little safe bubble away from all the other employees and all the other pressures and all the other HR and the CEOs and the flip and whatever it may be, where's their headspace actually at with the actual challenges that are going on outside of the title of temporary relevance in their business? Oh, look, I think the headspace. I think it ver- it ver- it varies <laughs> by industry um, mm. and obviously by person. But I think a lot of people are looking for one. You know, where how do we certainly in the beginning shore shore things up so that we we don't go under. How do we just make sure we keep our heads above water? But I, I've seen a lot of people really coming back to core purpose, core mission, and critical. What what are we really about? What is our reason for existence? Um, and I've seen some great innovation come out of this year, and I'm sure it will be well and truly flowing into next year. Like, you know, it's, sometimes it's been um, it's sped up the learning curve for rolling out new new ideas, for yeah, you know, obviously moving to the digital platforms to getting rid of um, systems that frankly were outdated and we kind of had a five-year plan and they're like, all right, let's speed that up. Um, but I think if the, in terms of headspace, some people are just overwhelmed and others are excited. Mm. I've met people who go, I am thriving in this crisis. Like this is me at my best. I mean, I'm mm. working on all cylinders, but I'm also like we, we, we have an ability here. There's something called the rally effect. You know, in the midst of crisis, you rally people behind a big, mission critical and some some leaders really rise to that and it's an ex- incredibly exciting time to activate that rally effect because mm. to really tap everyone and get everyone pulling together we've got bigger things at, at, at stake here than kind of our usual silo squabbles if we don't rally we're not going to survive this <clears throat> mm. so that can lead to some really exciting stuff too um and then others can be just stuck in overwhelm and i think frankly this year is a year some people have really risen and they've said they've learned more than they've ever learned in their whole lives. They've developed so much in who they are and how they lead. And others are literally just have, have really, really, really struggled. And, and hence why mental health has been a huge issue. 
Mm. So a, a great segue. The there's a hundred leaders that you've talked to. Half of them are on offense. Half of them are on defense. What is different in their mindset for those that are having the best year ever that are charging through? They're rallying the troops. They're getting on board. That that making new initiatives, they're creating efficiencies versus those that are, you know, freaking out. What is the common thread headspace wise between offense and defense of leadership in 2020? Self-trust. What do you mean by that? People who know that whatever happens, I can handle it and whatever unfolds here, We'll deal with it. We'll, we'll be okay. Like whatever happens, I'll be okay. We'll be okay. Uh, versus people who focus purely on what scares them and don't have that trust in their own ability to to deal with what's coming. And I know it's a kind of a different construct. It's you know what is self trust, but just that just that sort of inner faith, that inner groundedness. Whatever happens, I'll I'll deal with it. Um, and it's interesting. There was you might have heard, have you heard of the Stockdale paradox? No, no, I'm not. I failed high school, but go for it. <laughs> I, didn't learn, I didn't learn this in high school either. I can assure you. So there was a guy, Admiral Stockdale. Jim Collins originally wrote about him in his book Good to Great, but he was he was captured American um, and put into the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. <clears throat> and many people around him who were stuck in these really bleak conditions, many of the other ca- captives, prisoners. They just, some of them just died of despair because every year they thought they'd be home for the holidays and they weren't. And he just knew that he wouldn't be home for the holidays until the war was over. And he he said, but he just knew that he would ultimately get out of there. And afterwards, he they kind of coined it as the Stockdale paradox because I think leaders who can face the brutal reality of the situation, like this is tough this is dire we we might have to cut back 20 percent of our staff we're gonna you know take a hit here and a hit here there's no kind of putting rose-colored glasses on but absolute faith that will ultimately prevail and actually Gallup did a study of all the great crises of the 20th century and they looked at everything from you know the second world war and Pearl Harbor and the GFC and 9-11 and, and the attributes that they look for, that people look for in leaders is, is hope, that they will instill hope. We will get through this. One way or another, we'll get through this, that they could trust their judgment, that there was a stability to them. Um, and there was calm. They were kind of, that they were calm in the eye of the storm and that they could trust them. They knew they didn't, they knew they couldn't control the situation. They knew that there was a lot of things that are uncertain and the leader didn't know. They, they couldn't predict the future just like this year. Like how many? We've all got it wrong. We thought we'd be back to business by year end. But but a faith that, you know what, whatever happens will come through. And I think leaders can't operate from that place of sort of op- deliberate optimism and calm if they actually don't know in themselves, I will get through. And so their identity transcends their immediate circumstances and yeah, um, yeah. No, you, go, you go for it yeah I, so when I say self-trust I it's just that that deep innate I'm, I'm it's all going to be okay even when I don't know how even when I'm not sure I have all the answers but we'll figure it out yeah you, you talked about you know self-trust and absolute faith is is there is that similar to kind of relentless optimism 
Yeah, and it's optimism. And optimism, I'm absolutely, I'm an optimist, but that doesn't mean that you're not realistic about hard reality. Yeah. I mean, we often, sometimes the word optimism gets a bad spin because we talk about, oh, yeah, but you always see the positive of everything. No, you can say this is crappy. I mean, look at the death count in America today. It's shocking. It's brutal. It's tragic. So we're not saying, oh, everything's good. We're saying actually it's really hard and, and there's tragedy and there's heartache and there's hardship and there's people doing it really tough um, and my decisions are going to impact people's holidays. Um, however... It is that at the that good can always come from bad, and that we that we will find goodness in this, and actually we will be able to create a future that's absolutely worth living for, and that is actually even better than where we've come from, given it time, given it commitment. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that's a really important distinction to make when it comes to being optimistic, relentless optimism, absolutely, but it's not about wearing the the rose-coloured glasses and and denying hard hard realities. With leadership, when we first went into lockdown, um, I was been thinking about this idea of you know like pre-COVID, after COVID, before after what's like, and everyone went through the unprecedented times. And it's time to reset and regroup and blah blah blah, re everything. Then everyone came out of it in New Zealand um, and lots of other places and kind of seemed like a lot of it went back to business as usual. And the second one sort of came through and everyone, you know, went down a bit more of a mental spiral as if it was tougher. But when I was talking to uh, Rob Fife, who's a, he was the CEO of uh, in New Zealand about it, he goes, you know, Robert, it's not pre-COVID, after COVID. It's the bit in the middle, which is the most important, which is during COVID, because it's now where the it's not, you know, we're still transitioning through and the decisions that we're making now are actually um, shifting what things will be like in the future. When you look at leadership from uh, pre-COVID to leadership after COVID and during, what do you think the biggest, will there be a shift in leadership, successful leadership moving forward after this? And what will the difference have been from what it was like before COVID? I think leaders have had to, have always had to deal with uncertainty and mm. Great leaders have always been able to be decisive amid the ambiguity and the unknowns. But I think there's a, been an almost a normalisation, some level of normalisation of uncertainty. And people have had to practice pivoting and iterating, like make decision, but iterate and iterate and iterate and, and change that decision. And I am hopeful that if you think about innovation, you mentioned it before, you get innovation by being willing to make mistakes and take risks. You don't get it by making sure you have every duck in a row and there's zero tolerance for failure. And so in a year like this when there's so much uncertainty, people have had to people have got leaders have had to get more comfortable making decisions with with far less um, confidence in what the future is going to look like than they usually would. Usually they're like, oh, we want to have, you know, an 80% confidence rating on, on our future forecast. Well, it's been hard to do that. But ha they've had practice in let's make a decision, the best decision we can with what we know, and let's iterate that and adjust and adjust and adjust and adjust and sometimes throw it out and sometimes do a whole 180. Um, and I think that, that actually is like a muscle. It's a psychological muscle getting more comfortable with the discomfort of making decisions and making calls and trying things and taking risks amid all the unknowns. And so it's my hope that actually out the other side of this, you have what I call far more braver, more courageous leaders who are more comfortable with the ambiguity and 
and therefore actually can can operate in that space that sometimes many weren't able to before of, well, let's just play with this, let's experiment and let's give ourselves a lot of space to change as we go along. And I think there's a, that's, that is a kind of a psychological muscle. Um, I, prior to COVID, saw so many, particularly in really large corporates, I've seen so much uh, insecure, cowardly sort of leadership. They, every, people are too scared to make a decision unless they know it can't possibly be wrong because they don't want to look bad. And I think people who are being rigid and needing to have everything lined up and leading a lot of predictability, they've just floundered and and <laughs> gone under in this environment. Well, it's 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 exposed bad leadership because being able having to, you know, run things remotely, make these calls, they can't hide by anything else. They've been forced to make these, you know, do it. And I do feel that this, you know, you're talking about that the percentage that's been on offense through this when they come out of it. A tough decision in the future is going to, for them is going to be nothing compared to what it was during 2020 because they're in the office with their people. They can look them in the eye. They can have a conversation. They can have a work brainstorm with a whiteboard. They can go for a lunch and look, you know, and and have a real a real chat. So, I was my thought was that um, the future leaders that are really going to shine through. This has been actually there. This has been the filter of if you're a shit leader and you've not cared about your team, you don't really understand. Um, you know, the progressive nature of how you need to think about to, to make your company thrive and survive or whatever, whatever it is, you've been exposed and they're about to get booted, right? After it, those that have taken it, yes, there will be a lot of failures and stuff as well, but I think there might be a fundamental shift in the type of leaders that have more successful businesses in the future going through this, you know, real world MBA of, of a shit show that has been 2020, right? Does that make you more comf- confident in all of business and leadership in general, because everyone's gone through this as a collective to- together with these with these challenges. Because without it, let's say if you know humanity, if I'm an alien looking at humans, we're like, oh, we're just you know take along, and this happens, we're like, what the fuck? And it does that. When we build back up, do you do you think that humanity's resilience to running businesses in the commercial sense will be will the world have better business after this? I believe yes. Hmm. Call me an optimist, but I believe that absolutely what everyone has experienced, almost a collective trauma, but a collective shaking up this year, will actually lead to better leadership, will actually lead to businesses doing business better, uh, will lead ultimately to better outcomes. But, of course, you know, not without all the pain first. We're going, literally going, we're going through that. And to your point in terms of you think of what what it is to be resilient and to be agile and to have capacity and bandwidth for things you can read about that in books you can you know intellectually understand the concepts but it's like going off traveling you know you're a kiwi i'm an aussie and you've lived you know you live around the world you experience things you can read a travel book and then you can actually be backpacking in some place with not much money and it's late at night and there's a storm coming in and you don't know where you're going to stay or whatever they're very different experiences and and you've had to you've had to figure it out well that that builds a resiliency it builds an agility it builds self-reliance it builds creative resourceful thinking um in ways that just intellectually understanding those concepts doesn't. So I think people have really practised, had had a masterclass of building key leadership competencies for mm. the virtual world that we live in. And the, the reality is it's not a suddenly going to become, you know, very certain and predictable next year. I mean, this is 
this is the the norm is uncertainty and i think people are going to be that bit more comfortable with the discomfort that uncertainty always triggers and those who have you know i think about even a two year or two ago all the stress people had it's like oh what are the numbers going to be you go oh my goodness bring us back two years ago it, it felt incredibly stable but, safe yeah but the research i mean research shows that our brains right our brains when we uncertainty drives people to get into the defensive and that closes down our cognitive thinking like we literally can't think as smart when all we're doing is focus on potential losses and potential risks and the more comfortable people are at looking at well, what are the possibilities right now in the midst of all this disruption what are the ways we could use this and turn this into a catalyst for innovation for doing what we do better smarter bolder and and actually it expands our our vision literally we we can think more creatively more laterally we can move outside the box and come up with whole new paradigms that we wouldn't have if we hadn't been thrust out there. So I, I really believe we're going to see some really uh, profound and ongoing changes in all different spheres coming out of this year um, that I think ultimately will serve humanity in the long run. But, but of course, right now we're, we're still in the midst of it and we're yet to see yep. that. It, it's intriguing when you look at leadership, the way that things have potentially been challenged through this year. I am insanely looking forward to, for as much as a shit show as 2020 been, the actual lessons from inside all these bigger businesses after this is all said and done and the waves have calmed down and, and you actually then hear these these great stories and lessons and mergers and acquisitions and partnerships and all like the the stories of great leadership through this, which are happening as we speak, I'm really interested and intrigued to watch come out of the woodworks in years to come because there is so much amazing survival by so many businesses and exactly to your point, you know, to the, the thriving of so many other, these companies, um, the leadership lessons of what's been going on inside uh, will be epic. Like I love watching, um, well, just recently, you know, a bunch more, um, you know, professional athletes and stuff. They've been having their podcasts and you start hearing these stories from 20 years ago that you remember, oh, I was there when I remember what happened. And then you have to hear the story behind the story. I had no idea that dot, 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 dot. When that thing came out, I thought it was dot, 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 dot. So, you know, that, that gets me pretty excited around the future of like leadership lessons that will be learned from the next generation through this. If we come out more resilient to then open and talk about it, because obviously at the moment it's probably tough for everyone to talk about all of it because they're, they're in it. I was going to ask you about out of this, right? What do you think the top one, two, or three priorities for great leaders will be post this? Do you think they've changed, shifted it, and navigated it all? Like when they stack up, where is my energy going to go and what's it going to do? How do you think they're prioritized maybe one, two, and three for great great leadership from a CEO position out, um, after COVID? I, I think one, just getting real clarity of um – where to from here? So what's the invented future we want to create now? We've all been sort of in a semi-survival mode. People have been drinking life communications through a fire hose. Um, so what's the invented future? So I, that's where I would start with. What's the vision that you're moving towards? I think it's so important to I use that term invented future versus the default future. So getting real clarity around that. Two, um, human capital. We've obviously seen, um, you know, workforces, there's been 
a lot of disruption. There's been a lot of cutbacks. There's been it's been hard for those who go, and it's been hard for those left behind too. So I think mm. one is just really prioritizing people and making sure they've got everybody on the right people on board and supported to be able to achieve that vision. And three, just that cultural shift in terms of taking the taking the best and the gifts of this last year. How do we keep the best of in terms of being agile and iterating and making sure that we're not going to, that wasn't just a, a 2020 thing where we had to be making it up as we go along. How can we take some of that and, 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 and embed that in our culture and in our systems, in our processes moving forward so that we can be a more innovative, agile organisation, forward-leaning organisation? Um, mm. But something we haven't touched on there is the people aspect because I do think this hasn't just been an economic crisis and a public health crisis. It's, a, it's been a people crisis. How do you create the conditions for people to do their best and boldest work under massive pressure and in the midst of massive uncertainty. And that that will be ongoing, but really good leaders are able to create that. I call it in my work and in the my books and what have you, a culture of courage. How do you foster that culture of courage that emboldens people to do both you know, to be bold in their thinking and and take risks and push back and, you know, building that psychological safety. On leadership, you're talking about people. Um, I was going to actually just perfect, great segue once again, Maggie, just just head in the, head in the spots here. It's been great. How, how do you think it's possible to build virtual culture? Because with the exodus of, tech talent in San Francisco with the exodus of so many great brands and businesses going remote and everywhere. There's not those chances for the water cooler conversations. And there's now many, you know, a friend of mine uh, that I know is a CEO of this company. He, he just took over and in the first six weeks, he's seen one person because obviously through this, um, what challenges are leaders having to do to try and create culture virtually when potentially they may, may never meet some of their employees or whatever. I mean, this is a, I haven't seen much in the, uh, sphere so far around leading virtually to build that up yet and I'm wondering is virtual um, culture going to be a thing and how they do it and what have you seen when it comes to all things that have been virtual around people because I think it's a big one I think it's a really big one too mm. and I think it's it's something we need to give a lot of thought to in terms of talking about, oh, the new norm is everyone just kind of works from home. And I know some organisations have said, look, you can do that for the rest of your life if you want to. It's okay. But I believe that nothing can replace the in-person connections that happen and the sparks of creativity that, that occur when people come together and have that. And I mean, I do a lot of, I've been doing a lot of virtual work, facilitating keynote speaking, et cetera. And, and, and I don't believe it's possible to replicate what it is when you bring a group of people together in a room. So I think that culture, building culture across virtual teams has been and will continue to be a, a challenge. I think you can absolutely find a, a, a hybrid model moving forward where maybe we say, look, you know, yes, you have a lot more flexibility and work from home, but we do need to get together and we need to, you know, we need people in the office at least two days a week or we need to make sure we bring everyone together in these structured ways because 
uh, I think that's actually really important. Um, and, I, and I know there's people who just operate off virtual teams. I have a virtual team. We don't get together that often and we're certainly not at the moment. But um, we have got together. And in the meantime, what do you do? And I think leaders have to be so intentional about creating very personal touch points with people. And so having, whether if it's a Zoom conversation, having time is where we're not focused on, we're not focused at all on work right now, having games, being playful, you know, creating, you know, structuring, engineering, having fun times. We're all going to, you know, show up in our favourite costume or share a funny story or a photo or something that, that helps to build that sense of, personal connection beyond pure transactional work stuff. Um, I think one-on-ones, um, those in leadership roles, having as many one-on-ones and, and not just, you know, having a Zoom where you're looking them in the eye, even if you can't be with people in person. Um, I think we've got to be careful. I actually wrote a Forbes column on this a little while ago. I always believe it's important to not just rely on text and email for everything, but right now, I think it's even more important. Email has its place as as do, as, do, as any written communication, but having the verbal conversations with people and 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 building that rapport is so important between people. And I think we have to double down and even put more focus on that than we usually would because it's not naturally occurring. Yeah, uh, a buddy of mine in New Zealand, he's a CEO of a one of the telcos and he's been doing um, little personal vidal, uh, videos um, through the internal team chats and stuff, just a morning little catch up saying, what's up, you know, just popping in, he's on his t-shirt doing whatever and just trying to really humanize. Um, I, I feel that a lot of time people in an organization, unless they know them, they, they see them in the, the ivory tower up there and the, the suit and the boardroom and the power and whatever. They don't know what it's like if they're just at home hanging and the cat walks past or them in a t-shirt. And it kind of feels in many ways, well, New Zealand anyway, it's become pretty, pretty clear that it, it really has flattened off and humanized a lot of leaders who others in the organization potentially yeah. didn't think were human. And I yeah. think that's kind of a good thing, right? But it's that transition of how does that convert from, um, online to offline and that transition piece is what I'm intrigued to see what will happen next. Yeah, me too. I've heard a lot of people say very much the same thing, but it's been really cool to say, oh, I didn't even know you had twins or you go. I didn't realize that you're a dog lover or, you know, or whatever, you know, those just, and funny stuff, like being able to laugh. We need to laugh, right? We need yeah. to play. And we, and I think the humanization of some leaders, some people leaders are already pretty human, but others it was like, oh, I didn't even know they were human. <laughs> you know, they, oh, wow, they really are. Um, someone's married to them, who, who knew? Um, so they've got kids who love them. Wow, go figure. So so I, I, think, um, I think that's been a really cool aspect and you don't want to lose that, right? We don't want to lose no. that. So how can we take the best of this time? Um, but I do think that cultural piece while we will, I'm sure, never go back to the same, the, the norm that everyone comes into the office all day, every day, we're already, we've, we've, I mean, I've spoken to so many CEOs who go, we will never have that again. We will always give more flexibility. We've seen that this can work. We've had, you know, I've just actually this morning met with someone um, in person, actually, <laughs> and uh, she runs her own um, PR company. And she said, like, we haven't had anyone coming together, but we've had a really great year. I mean, she, her clients are in the in the health space and wellness space, so it's been a really good year. She said, and actually, people have performed really well. 
But she said, we are missing some of the creativity and collaboration that comes when we come together. So we'll yep. always have more flexibility moving forward, but we absolutely still need to get people together because we're missing out on some of the ideas that would be coming if if we were if we were coming together more. So mm. yeah, I think it's like how do we how do we do that? And I've, I've a few CEOs I've talked to said, you know, we might have it where there's a couple of days a week we want everyone on deck. Um, we might have fewer meetings, having been based in Asia Pacific. Instead of flying, you know, from Singapore to Hong Kong every six weeks for a half-day meeting, we're going to have them quarterly, but we're going to make them two full days or we're going to have them, you know, every six months and, and just make it a bigger event. So it's going to be interesting to see how 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 it does, emerge, how we emerge the other side of it in terms of what the new norms are. Well, I think it's almost two waves, right? The first one is, hey, we're on lockdown, they come back in, this is how it's going to be kind of similar. And then the second one happens or if they're still on it for a prolonged period of time and then it's, wait a second, actually this is the new normal. We need to tweak and change. It does feel like mentally all leadership has shifted to now this is the way it will be. So flipping be up on board or piss off because it's been nine months and you can't just expect nothing to happen. So they've got to, you know, try and create and go. I was going to um, switch gears just a little bit and ask um, keynote speaking. Events, conferences, places, there's hundreds of, there's thousands of speakers all around the world. I know a, a whole bunch of them that do, you know, they just, they have, they roll out and this is what they do. How has, have you seen the actual business element of um, professional speakers and events and conferences? And I mean, it's a big, it's a big business, right? There's, there's a whole bunch of, it's a, it's a, it's a machine. How do you, how do you think speakers have had to pivot through these times and those those you've talked to in those circles i mean at the end of the day they've got to break bread and make make cash too have you seen the change of um commercialization of 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 talent and speakers actually go during all this and where do you see that heading yeah it's been really interesting because obviously i i do a lot of keynote speaking myself and back in i don't know mid late march i just bam you know a whole lot of the whole the year's pipeline sort of just fell off fell off um, and then over time, it's picked back up and I'm doing now a lot more virtual work. Uh, that said, there's still been, you know, it has not been my best year, put it that way, in terms of income. Um, yeah. Now, speakers, there's obviously different types of speakers. Some people are really deep matter subject experts and, um, and you know, I believe even my own work how do we get people to be braver? How do we get people to embrace change, et cetera? So there's been a huge need for that. And I've done quite a lot of virtual work in terms of workshops and um, and I've certainly done keynotes as well. But I think, I believe you. there's no way known you can replicate what it is to bring a whole lot of people together and to do that. Um, some people I've seen invest really heavily in, you know, a lot of bells and whistles in terms of multi-camera, multi, like, you know, studio, TV studio sort of setups. I think that'll become more normalised moving forward. Um, that said, I think there's still going to be, once we come out the other side of this, when people are feeling safe to come together, I think there's going to be, I've talked to so many people who go, I cannot wait to get back. I meet a lot of people. I, yeah. I, there's about a third go, I'm happy to just never, ever go to the office again. A third say, you know, I'm fine to go back when it's safe. And a third are like, get me back. I cannot wait. I'm champing at the bit. I miss conferences. I miss travel. I miss going people. to the office. 
Um, so there's a lot of people like that who don't thrive working from home. They like a bit of versatility, but they certainly don't want to be there all the time. They love being with people and and the connection that comes. And so from a from a from a speaking perspective, and I do obviously a kind of facilitating you know leadership teams and stuff as well. I think there's going to be a lot of people that looking forward to bringing everybody together again. Um, and they mm. may do it differently they did in the past, I think more intentionally. There's times we don't need to come together, we can do Zoom, but when we do come together, let's make sure it's it's really well thought out and really impactful. Um, and there's a lot of trust building, rapport building, building those relationships um, because mm. maybe we're not going to have the number of touch points at the water cooler moving forward. Um, and, you know, for me as a, for me personally as a speaker, I I love being with people. It's why I do what I do mm. and I really miss it. it you know, and I, I can speak into the camera on my computer like I'm doing right now and, yeah, that's great. And, you know, I see a bunch of faces and sometimes if it's a small group, it's interactive and, and you know, and it can be really valuable and people get stuff from it. But at the end of the day, your press, you know, end meeting, um, it's 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 more difficult to keep people fully engaged, you know, where I usually do an hour. Like, yeah. you know, let's stick with 35, 40 minutes and then do QA. It's just it's it's more difficult for sure. Um, and I think it's a yeah. lot easier for people to zone out <laughs> when they're when they're just sitting behind a computer. Well, it's the it's the energy piece, um, right? I I talk about um like energy architecture, you know, how you craft and curate experience with people. And like, I, I love that type of thing. I can, I can walk into a room and I can feel the, you know, I'm IQ not as smart as I am EQ wise. So I can roll up and I can feel that. And I roll into a room and you can, you know, build momentum with energy amongst each other. And even if someone's not into it to start with, by the end they are opposed to you're exactly right. They, they hit the end and it's just in meeting. Now what, you know, and, and I think there's, there's such a tension and force of, and I don't think it will ever be broken because fundamentally at the end of it and the DNA of it is that that craving for genuine human connection in the real world is not going to go anywhere. And if anything has been more, um, like my sort of mini prediction was the second this thing's open, people are going to travel, connect, go out, do they, people are going to go to town. They're just going to go for it because they're like, finally I can go to the bar or I'm going to Hawaii or I dot, 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 dot. So I think 21, the second it opens is going to be like, the, you know, the, the, the 16 year old that's just got the driver's license, they're just going to get active. You know, they get, they're going for it. They're getting out there. <laughs> I, I, agree. I agree. There'll be a lot of travel, et cetera, once everything does open up again. Absolutely. And I, I, I just think as humans, we're wired for connection. And not everybody's a raging extrovert, but we are wired for connection. And we, thrive most through our connections with others and yes it's lovely to talk to someone across from zoom but ideally if you and i were sitting there here at a bar right now or in a coffee shop you know it would just be it would be actually better it would be cool we'd, we'd probably go into stuff that we mightn't go into chatting here behind our our cameras and across the country from each other and and i think and i think people have a deep need for emotional intimacy um, and it's harder to build emotional intimacy. And on, a, and on the word intimate, often we kind of think of it in sexual terms, but I'm just talking that emotional, really sharing what's on my heart with what's on your heart, you know. Real and shit. Yeah, 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 real shit. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll end up in tears and maybe I won't. But And I'm not saying this is this applies to everyone in the workplace, but it's, it's easier. We become more detached when we're sitting behind a screen. It's why people tweet things that they would never say in person because there's this 
the physical distance creates this sort of emotional distance and it's easier to, to be a bit detached from the real humanity of those of others and 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 if we constantly just living behind our screens I think we're missing out on building some of that emotional intimacy that really is where we we can enjoy the greatest fulfillment in our professional yeah. and personal lives and that's probably a, a good thing regardless whether it's an iPhone 12 or iPhone 25 or iPhone 120 or Android whatever it will be um, that can't beat that you know that technology can't beat that feeling that technology regardless what comes in the future will not beat that um, that pure personal in-person thing and that energy of plugged into our day won't go anywhere I was um, before we finish off into um, uh, parenthood actually so Growing up seven, four children, I believe. Um, but you talk about leadership and bravery and courage with CEOs. Now, do those same lessons apply from what you've learned from what you're talking to the CEOs to then talking to your children? Because I've got two doors under three now and then just genuine um, selfish question for myself. Uh, how do you approach empowering courage and bravery in two young daughters that are under three opposed to some 60-year-old dude named John in a three-piece suit from Milwaukee? <laughs> <laughs> I remember when my 16-year-old, we were living in Australia and my husband was at the time working for a company that said they would move us back to the United States and He's ultimately left that company. But my oldest said, look, you know, I really want to finish high school in the US because I really want to go and do college basketball. And at 16, sort of managed it all himself and headed off to live on the other side of the world to go to boarding school. And and I remember being sad about him going. He's a great kid and he's actually just finishing college this week now. <laughs> and... And I remember saying to someone, I can't believe he's, you know, going and they're like, well, Margie, you talk about a culture of courage. You know, you have brave kids because you you give them space to, to, to learn how to be self-reliant, to be independent, to navigate risk, you know, even getting on a plane. I, you know, I, all my kids were travelling on planes from a much younger age than average, including internationally. And so I think actually there's a huge parallels with leadership mm. In, in any team or organisation and leading in a family and how do you create the conditions for your children to thrive and to express themselves fully and not to operate from fear but operate from self-trust that whatever happens, they can handle it and to make smart decisions um, that aren't guided by fear and insecurity but by passion and inspiration. And so really instilling in children a growth mindset you don't you, it's okay that you're not going to land the perfect score or get on the a team it's okay why don't you just give it a go and try and try and if you didn't land it oh well that was an interesting experience what did you learn from trying out for the top team or what did you learn mm. from missing out on the lead role and hey but well done for trying like just i give my kids have always just massively rewarded their courage and their attempt to try and have had to be brave myself in letting them take risks, you know, letting them go out and not overprotecting them. And as parents, you know, two little girls, you're very protective of their well-being and safety. But I have seen the consequences of parents who overly protect and shelter their children, who make sure they're only going to get the A's and they only win and they, they never, they're never anywhere that's remotely risky. Then they, they hit 18, go to college, and they don't know how to tell that that's a really bad alleyway to go down and that one's fine. So you've kind of got yeah. to 
help them learn to navigate the world, which has lots of risks and lots of decisions? How do you set them up so that when they go out in the world, they can figure things out and be smart and sensible about it? Mm. Great, great way to finish this. Great way. <laughs> Okay, so let them. What's tough for me too, because I was an ex-professional snowboarder, so I almost died every day. And now, like literally, someone said, "Oh, you're going to try and get into snowboarding." I'm like, "Hell no! They're going to stay at home. They can have some. They can do some drawing. They can sit down and play with some crowns. Stuff that." And it's like, wait a second, you can't do that. I'm like, yes, I can. And then instantly, I was like, wait a second, I can't be that guy. You can't. You can't be that guy because you've got to, you know. And you know, they're they're um yeah two daughters under three now. So it is, um, those days will be coming, but it's, it's great to know that I think at the end of the day, when you, if you exactly what we talk about, like give them those, that sort of environment where they can feel like brave to try and do and the courage to go and give it a crack. That's, that's the, that's the hook, right? Which is, which is awesome. My kids did about 58 different sports. I mean, literally they laugh. They're like, mom, we don't know any family that kids have done as many sports as our family. And let I let me just say, most of them were very mediocre at ninety eight percent of those sports. Like I didn't have actually my oldest loved basketball, but still he didn't manage to land it in the you know a division one or three team in but in, in college basketball. So, but he gave it his best shot and he learned a lot. And um, and so I think it's just letting them have the space to discover because maybe not every just you're an athlete, maybe they won't be into athletics at all. And I had to learn, you know what, they've got to find their own thing just because they don't want to play sport. That's totally fine. Not everyone wants to play yeah. sport. You know, they want to be on stage. I get it. Um, look, I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been great chat. I've learned a lot. I've got some good <laughs> good stuff that you've got. We've got self-trust in there. See, selfishly, as everyone else gets value to I get to uh, learn some stuff as well, which is just super cool. But uh, Maggie, I really appreciate your time. And as soon as this is all over, I I will track you down at one of your keynotes, and I'll come to an event with a thousand people, and we'll we'll have that wine and maybe a cry. Oh. <laughs> well, maybe we'll just have a good laugh instead. <laughs> Sounds good. Hey, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Maggie. If people want to um, check out you, your work, uh, MaggieWarrell.com, is that the, the spot yeah. anywhere else they can go to? That's LinkedIn. Yes, my books, including my latest one, which is about self-trust, you've got this, is on there and on Amazon, etc. And I also, my leadership programs are at globalcourage.com. Globalcourage.com, MaggieWorrell.com, and also go buy the book. Um, you've got this. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time, Maggie, and enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Take care. Adios. See ya. Bye. All right, Maggie Worrell. Epic day. Great chat. Good banter. This has been Rebecca Live. Uh, Signing out, Dash Radio, Dash Talk X. Have a good day, team. See you later.